<laughs> okay. This is John Stepling, and this is Aesthetic Resistance podcast number. I think it's 26, but I'm not going to swear to that. Um, and this is a big one that I've looked forward to. We have uh, Corey Morningstar in Toronto. We have Hiroyuki Hamada in New York, in Long Island, I think. We have Molly Klein also in New York City, and we have me in Norway. So hi, everyone. Hello, hello. Hello. Good morning. <laughs> Good. Um, it's afternoon for me. The rest of you guys are in the, the same time zone. It's morning. So, um, But the first time we had Corey on was um, I got a lot of very positive response and, and people really wanted part two and, and to hear more about this. And, and um, I, I trust they went and looked up wrong kind of green and started reading your stuff. But, but Corey did a, a really remarkable three-part um, article recently. And it's something that I would like to touch on a little bit. And if you want to introduce that a little, Corey, that would be great. Okay, um, it's basically called, um, it's not a social dilemma, it's the calculated destruction of the social. It's a three-part series. The third part is probably um, the most um, important. And it's long, people have to sit and digest it and um, take their time, go find a quiet place, digest it and really take it in. Um, I could have cut it shorter and made four parts, but I really wanted it to be all in one place. And so the series is dense, um, but important. It's all about the, basically on um, the framing and marketing the, and the money behind basically the humanizing tech going forward for the fourth industrial revolution, um, also known as now the great reset um, being rolled out by the world economic forum and finance and governments across the world. Okay. Is that good? Okay. Yeah. Right. And the calculated destruction of this. So what's uh, what I think is so useful about um, all of, and I think everyone has to read the entire blog, um, but, and print it out, print it out and sit down with it. Like, don't try to take every, you know, the thing is, it's very tempting to um, click out as you read to, um, to, to read all the references and you have to not do that. You have to, to print it out, get away from your computer, <laughs> read through the whole thing and then go through the references, you know, to back it up because there, it's a, it's an enormous um, like node of all the information of everything that's happening. But it, it's really important to see this is the climax of a long program. You know, one of the, one of the problems that uh, Corey is getting trolled all the time on the in, on Twitter of people trying to assimilate it to a right wing critique, you know, which is, yeah, um, you know, the, the, the classic protocol, the pseudo critique of capital, which is that, you know, there's a, there's a cabal of some sort and, you know, very, it's the anti-Semitic model was the first one, but it doesn't have to be about any ethnicity. It doesn't have to be about anything that like that, but that there's a cabal that means bad, that's going to destroy our otherwise natural and organic social relations when you know as if you read Corey's blog you see this is the this is the the uh, the ruling class the whole transnational ruling class that has a leadership that has a more daring program than 
you know, most of the class would be aware, you know, most of the class is busy trying to make money for themselves, right? That's what they do all day. And then you have a leadership of the class that furthers the program uh, through the state, you know, that they need the state to cooperate. They can't do it on their own. So they, and that this is the culmination of, you know, years of enclosure and it's the last enclosure. That's the important thing is to understand that this is about enclosing the world and which means dispossessing humanity, you know, making humanity, um, cutting us off from what we need. You know, it's the same as you throw people, you throw peasants off the land. That's stage one, you know, that happened in the, in the Renaissance. Yeah, destroy their culture. Destroy their culture, destroy their bonds to each other. And now they want to, they want to put that wedge right through your body. They want to sever the woman from the fetus. Uh, Legally, they want to sever the, uh, you know, it's like how they twist like the whole uh, an abortion issue, an actual abortion debate, the real abortion debate that, you know, between Catholics and feminists and stuff. That's on both sides of that. You have the ground level as a, you know, some kind of concept of the human. Right. I mean, you could agree. Of it. I feel strongly about it, but you could disagree. But it's only about whether the woman's own the mother has some kind of. Uh, you know, what her relation to her own body is. But these people want abortion to be legal, but not up to the mother. You know what I'm saying? They want to decide, they want the state to control the womb or really the owner. And that's the thing. This is a fascist project that's fusing the, the, the owners of the world and the state. Well, I have felt, I mean, I started writing a blog post actually today on that, 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 I have this, I can't shake this feeling um, of have of something having gone out of daily life. And it's connected to this destruction of the culture, um, which since all the lockdowns, COVID has been this useful cover story for, for this dispossession. Um, and, and I feel it. I feel it in some elusive, uh, difficult to articulate way. And I, I'm starting to realize it is uh, the culture that I am missing, the social part of that culture, um, which even in truncated fashion, I still had, I was still in touch with in some way until recently. And, and it is starting to feel as if it is lost now. Um, you know, museums are closed, cinemas are closed, theaters are shut down, all of that. But it's also the the incessant propaganda regarding um, all of this stuff, the Great Reset, you know. There's and- like a cult class that cares about nothing but the COVID game, just like the kids obsessed with the Pokemon, you know, that's all day. They don't care about anything else. They don't care that the restaurants are closing, that there's no theater, that jazz is being like literally abolished. In New York City, you know, and it's not everyone, but it's a really significant class. It's a, and they all they care about is their COVID statistics and they're playing it like a video game. And you realize they could do this for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Well, and the, reason, yeah. Sorry, the reason that John is feeling like that, and um, I think most of us are, is because we are literally being engineered daily. I mean, that's what this is. We are being re-engineered to... Um, going forward into this new world, right? Where humans now is with machines. And so it's a deliberate undertaking and deliberate 
deliberate engineering of the global populace to disassociate from biological, physical, um, you know, human warmth, joy, all of that, and and bond, and even preference, um, cold, artificial, digital um, life, right? Right. So- I mean, your friends, your friends on television. Right. Yeah. yeah do you remember? I mean, John and I are old enough to remember how sickening it was when they first started to be recorded voices, like in a in a, a machine, you know, to get your car ticket or on the phone, you know, that it was it was it literally made you sick when you heard the recording talk to you. Really? Now they make a recording that says, mm, you know, it talks in a hipster way. But then you realize their whole generation uh, grew up where a human being didn't answer the phone when you called the, uh, they, they, it doesn't make them sick. They're, well, I they're mean, prepared not, for it. It's not just, I mean, on a sort of banal prosaic level or something, mm-hmm. if you try to contact a corporation, you have a complaint or something, um, it is virtually impossible, like pretty much totally impossible to reach a human being. Yeah. Um, you talk to computer voices. You talk to, you know, hi, you want to enter chat? I am, you know, the robotic voice of something. And there's they can supply no answers because they're very limited and that's intentional. Um, and so you send off an email or something that goes into the cyber dead letter file. And that's it. You are cut off of you have there's no recourse. There's nobody to talk to. There's for whatever complaint you have, there is literally no response anymore. You are expected to just accept it because you have no choice. You must. And you're it. hearing this recording. That's not. It's not human language, but it mimics human language. It does something to our brain. Trying to understand, yeah. you know, trying to interact with that thing, and then you have young people who have grown up uh, having to interact with that, and you see that their language is different. And then, do you remember if you look back when that stuff was introduced? Because I was grown up, I remember it really well. Um, there had been five or six years of persistent um, kind of uh, hipster, not hipster, you know, persistent countercultural propaganda against people that you talk to on the phone, like against um, the, op- the operators at these um, companies or the electric company and making and demonizing those people. And the sort of, um, the, uh, Lily Tomlin had a sort of funny act, remember? Um, her uh, her uh, telephone operator, now she right. was comical, but constantly and only in retrospect did you understand because I always wondered like why are because I knew people who did that job you know like parents friends and stuff and I was like why are people so mean about that such an such an awful job you know and why are people why do people hate the person who answers the phone at the electric company (laughs) and then you realize that this was part of the this was you know setting up to eliminate them well, it's it's. I mean, I I just will in, interject yeah. this on on a comment on that, which is that I have seen the way in which this affects small children, the way they are kind of indoctrinated into this system, um, because it used to be when, and I see this in kindergartens here. They call them Barnahaga in Norway. Um, and they're they're very sane and and in very Norwegian kind of way, but children have stopped making inventing sounds for things because toys make their own sounds. 
um, the dump truck and now they push a button and there's a sort of pseudo human voice of a truck driver saying repetitive cliched things and the truck makes a lot of noise and the kid. It used to be that children invented those noises and voices themselves. And I have watched kids at kindergarten now and that's missing. They've stopped doing that. They wait for the machine toy to supply the voice. And so the fantasy world becomes very restricted, very narrowed. And it's kind of horrifying. That's the generation yeah. that is being raised. So um, I took the batteries out of all the toys that my kids got. <laughs> and one of the things you see on Corey's blogs about this is that, you know, there used to be this when she first started to talk about this, which is long before it really hit the screens, um, it was being sold um, in the usual way, you know, as like, oh, this, look how fun it would be to, you know, have a chip in your hand that will do, you have all your passwords, or whatever, that it's being sold as exciting and fun and eroticized. And at this point, the, the propaganda has become absolutely terroristic. It's not, it's not selling the Great Reset now, it's threatening it. Well, let's let's, Corey, if talk a little bit about the the people behind the Great Reset, where this came from, and because I again, so many people, this is like an introductory lesson for a lot of people, I think. Um, okay. Um, okay. So before before we start with that, where it came from, I just wanted to mention just something I'd read recently, and it was just yeah. that today's population spends ninety percent of its time indoors, and globally, sixty one percent of parents surveyed. Um, in this study that they did, children don't know how to play without using technology. So that's just a recent study that I was reading going to what you were saying, John, right. and just how the whole point of even how we've been so engineered even over the last hundred years. I mean, a hundred years ago, we, we lived half of our life in darkness, right? And now right. we're the light and light pollution i mean this is all happening very 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 quickly a hundred years ago that would have been opposite we would have spent 90 percent of our time outdoors right, right. not and 10 percent in now it's the opposite which again contributes because we're trapped in our homes with all this plastic um gassing off chemicals and everything which contributes to you know cancers and and just unhealthy you know um no and and look i mean, i i live in a country in which um, there is a, a tradition of outdoor life. There are, there are Norwegian words for a, a kind of um, principle of free air. The literal translation is free air life. And, and Norwegians probably represent the people who spend most time outdoors of maybe anyone in the world. But, um, but it's shrinking. It's, it's lessening as time goes on because... Um, because, you know, by high school, kids spent all their time on smartphones and they know almost nothing else. Their, yeah. their view of Doesn't the, world... the outside feel like inside now? When I go outside, yeah. I yeah. feel like I'm in a Disneyland street. It, it's just a feeling, a sensation right on my street. I don't feel like I'm outside anymore. And one of right. the things I was looking, following up some of um, Corey's references, we went to the World Economic Forum. And so in June, while everyone, you know, in the big cities, like uh, everyone who is politically um, active, where the organizations are, you know, that have any lobbying power are, uh, are located, was, uh, was under house arrest. The, the, FE, the um, FCC quietly gave uh, Jeff Bezos permission to launch 30, 
3,200 satellites. Wow. Which is more than the total number of active satellites up there right now. Like yeah. the Amazon is going to own all these satellites. So the earth is inside, <laughs> yeah. you know, <laughs> you know, they put us in actual structures, little cages on the earth, but the whole earth, that's the thing is to get the, um, the cage around the earth to build the, as I um, tried to get people to understand with this image that, you know, used to be that the, the Nazis um, captured people, you know, on a battlefield or in a town and shipped them to the prison camp. But now it's easier to build the prison camp around everyone. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, yeah. and then we're all internet of bodies, right? So right. that's a good segue. Like if Hiroyuki could maybe talk about the what you're talking about, the same thing, the enclosure, the contraction of capitalism that, that Hiroyuki, you were talking about, um, you used some sort of analogy about the cage. Maybe you could talk about that before I jump into where the Great Reset came from. Well, I mean, the basic uh, the direction we are heading is that um, uh, domestication of everything uh, without putting everything uh, uh, in uh, recognizable forms, uh, numbers, uh, so that we can quantify. So the basic mechanism of capitalism is relying on this uh, domestication of everything. So this COVID thing is really, really um, convenient tool to uh, put everything in the uh, framework. And, uh, and also the thing about um, uh, us dealing with uh, machines and um, uh, rules and all those things uh, probably don't apply to the uh, ruling class. So this um, uh, creates conditions that are different from uh, uh, them and us, and that really uh, uh, augment the uh, uh, capitalist hierarchy. And uh, this is a really strong tool in conditioning and uh, perpetuating the, uh, the direction uh, we are heading, I think. Well, it's becoming a caste. That's the thing. There's a, there were right. classes. There are classes that existed as the main things. You know, that's the liberal. That's the condition in liberalism where you know you have privileges by virtue of being able to pay for something. Money. Money puts you in first class on an airplane. So now they're saying, no, it's not money anymore. You don't have to pay for your privilege. You. It's going to be a caste. You know, like with the 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 British are saying, people of so-called high value are going to get out of quarantine. They're not going to have to pay to get out of quarantine. That's not class anymore. That's caste. And they're they're transforming back into and and Plato's Republic is the, absolutely the model. They're going to own everything in common. The caste is going to have one big corporation, which they already have, you know, the ruling class all owns AIG or whatever, all the stocks, they own them in common. And, uh, and then everyone else is going to be, you know, chipped or whatever. And did you notice in the this um, objection that the former Pfizer respiratory virus expert um, this this petition that he said that there's a marker in these um, things in the in the uh, Pfizer virus has a, something luminescent that he says there's no reason to uh, for a vaccine to have it that it it would help with uh, X-rays or something you know scans but it's not there's no reason for there to be this marker in this 
vaccine, but it's there, this substance that glows. Wow. Yeah, I have noticed, I've been thinking and like over the past year, more and more just noticing how people in general, um, working class people in the global north, how more and more I've watched over the years as I've written how they identify with um, the um, elites, you know, the Kleins, the McKibbins, the liberal left and the ruling class itself. And I was thinking about how brands have helped achieve that. You know, you see a celebrity with a certain bag. Well, you can go out and get that bag or a knockoff of that bag. And then in your head, you're on equal, you know, you're like, um, right. You're not like, you don't identify with, um, the working class, even if you're part of it, right. You're, you don't even recognize where you are in this, um, hierarchy. Yeah, yeah like, it's interesting because Naomi Klein was such an expert in this stuff, and then people still want to say, "Oh, they don't know what they're doing." And it's like, "But what do you right. mean they did?" She published these bestsellers about this. Not the only thing she doesn't do in those bestsellers is say, "You know, we're um, instrumentalizing this this science." I wanted to just add one thing because I don't want to interrupt Corey on, mm-hmm. on getting back to the thing, but that that idea of I can own the knockoff bag that Nicole Kidman had in this, you know, um, HBO show. And therefore I am like Nicole Kidman in my own show, which is partly in my head and partly on the screen. And this touches on this thing. And I want to get back to this later, but I don't want to do it right now. Um, Which I have been thinking about a lot, which is the way in which humans the, the importance of narration for humans, that we narrate our stories to ourselves and that that, that inner life, that capacity to, to, for creation and fantasy and dreaming and imagination um, has eroded so much because of screens and that, that COVID is experience, absolutely experienced as a TV show for people. It's a disaster movie, miniseries. And, and and the the that's reinforced by being able to oh I'm gonna I saw that that bag was online I can get that delivered very quickly and then I will be feel more embedded in my own private disaster movie because I, or whatever it is um, and you know there are countless things and and you know the the branding when it switched to lifestyles when that word was invented there was a profound shift in the way marketers worked and in the way in which people narrated their private disaster movie shifted as well. But, but let's come back to that because I wanna, I wanna go back to the, the World Economic Forum and all these people um, before we launch off into another digression, which I'm famous for. Anyway. I, I can introduce that. Hiroyuki, do you wanna add anything before I introduce like where that came from, the Great Reset? Well, I, I just regard it as an uh, uh, extension of uh, capitalism being uh, 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 destructive, and uh, it, it it the the cyclical um, uh, crisis is inherent, and uh, in order to take care of it, we need more and more restrictions. The hierarchy should be more strict. So in order to keep this going, 
we're going to need the, you know, like call, uh, uh, Morley was saying, we're going to need a caste system. We're going to need more um, um, uh, restriction in terms of freedom movement, freedom of speech, and all those things. And uh, digitizing everything would make it more efficient. It would be more manageable. So that's, I think, is the uh, basic uh, uh, tendency of what we are seeing, I think. Yeah. Okay, so I'm gonna, okay, launch into the Great Reset, where to begin. So when I was writing the Greta series, the manufacturing of um, consent, I don't even remember the name, I'm sick of Greta, anyway. Um, when I was writing that on, I think when I got to part um, act five, I, I don't have it in front of me. Anyway, I got to the part about the World Economic Forum and the, um, the new global architecture, um, you know, at that time, Greta was already embedded into the World Economic Forum as, uh, as, you know, the best influencer that they've ever had. I mean, it was sort of their foray into the public domain, right? Before people who talked about Davos and the World Economic Forum were just business, right? Um, Forbes, um, you know, Financial Times, everybody else, the public, not so interested what was happening there. So, so Greta sort of brought them to the forefront. And um, a lot of messages, actually, that were being basically put into our collective psyche at that time. Now we can go back and recall them, you know, um, certain ones. What did we mention last week um, on the last show, John? Um, change is coming, whether you like it or not. Right, right. I want you. To, I want you to panic. Right. The house. The house is. Our house is burning. Like all these panic and fear. So what? What happened with the? You know the the said pandemic. The said the pandemic has done what Greta couldn't quite do. Right. Like people loved her. Um, they were able to share her and feel very. Um, it was a lot of posturing sharing on the Greta, like, you know, sort of like the pink ribbon on your shirt or the poppy, right? Um, so people, but it, but it didn't create the fear that they needed to do what they wanted. So anyway, back at that time, again, this is early 2019, when I was writing that, <clears throat> I think even in that act, I covered some of the World Economic Forum <clears throat> in the in the new global architecture, the fourth industrial revolution, but I think I even wrote in there that I'd come back and expand on that at a later time because, <clears throat> sorry, just need a drink. <clears throat> yeah, because, I mean, to be honest, at the time, some of the ideas and, and stuff happening within that, I thought that would roll out at a way later date. I thought we had lots more time. But what I did find for that, the, global economy was ready to collapse. I mean, at that point, there was a global debt of $253 trillion. And I knew that they wouldn't be able to do another bailout because I didn't think people would um, accept that after the last one. And so I really, really wondered how they're gonna pull this off. And then what I've been writing about for years and what they've been um, trying to um, get ready for years is the financialization of nature, which is monetizing nature, assigning a price to every um, to everything in nature, right? Payments for ecosystem services, nature will be bought, sold, traded on Wall Street. 
And that year after year, I just thought there's just no way people accept this. How will they ever pull it off? And then I started seeing, you know, they're slowly, slowly introducing it to the public, but of course, never saying that they're going to put a price on it. Just, you know, beautiful, um, expensive, um, beautiful videos with animals and flowers and all the emotive (laughs) things that make you feel, you know, um, you, you know, they just make your heart sing. Right. So that's, but they never actually tell you like the new deal for nature, which is world economic forum and world wildlife fund, Al Gore's the climate reality project. Um, so they, I mean, you, you had literally, you can watch the clock spinning, people signing these petitions, New Deal for Nature, but they actually never say what it is, but people sign it anyway, right? Not even knowing what this New Deal is. And, you know, not to mention nature doesn't deal. (laughs) Nature doesn't deal. You know, nature will do what she wants. She's not going to deal. So, um, okay. So, Again, with the financialization of nature, all of a sudden you can create, if you do, so they're going to replace the whole system. GDP will be replaced with natural capital accounting, right? So GDP is estimated to be around, uh, around 88, $90 trillion the last time I looked. So they've assigned all these monet- this monetary value on oceans and everything, um, you know, planetary, all the ecosystems. And that they've they've put a price on at around 140, 150 trillion. So you see, you can create all of a sudden um, trillions of dollars appear with a magic wand out of thin air. And so, again, people don't really know what this is. It's all being pushed through through um, the United Nations, which partnered with World Economic Forum last June. Officially partnered with them. Um, again, in March, World Economic Forum partnered with the World Trade Organization the same day that they launched or announced the pandemic. Um, so you see this huge consolidation of power, right, happening in real time. Um, how they, the next thing up is smart cities, how they will, and, and that will be done. Like right now, they've had to bring in the, the municipal governments to, 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 for this great reset. They've had to bring in those, and they've done that through groups they've created c40 cities and the global covenant of mayors and that's led by bloomberg clinton and the world bank right and then like a score of other institutions and um, ngos so they've had to bring in the municipalities again to make this all happen um so okay <laughs> sorry this <laughs> There's so many, there's so many roads and avenues here, yeah, right? Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? It's, it's <laughs> extraordinary. And, and I'm just reminded two things. Hiroyuki wrote that great thing about um, an article that he wrote on, on feudal Japan and the comparisons with restrictions of movement. And, and, and Molly has talked about this too, of course, with the contraction of capital and, and the, the new feudalism and stuff. Um, it's that's that's a really very apt metaphor and and um, if if Molly you're really good on the I actually wanted you to be on the show because you're very good on the economic analysis of this stuff um, I'd so, like to just put just add the backstory for yeah, where, yeah, where Kari starts that's... I mean because it's true that the World Economic Forum dropped from site after 9-11 but of course it, throughout the 1990s World Economic Forum was the focus of the entire global dissident project called Altermondialism and 
Ultramondalism, even, you know, they created because of the World Economic Forum was the conference where all the, um, the treaty organizations and the ruling class, um, private and public and NGOs and the treaty orgs like the World Trade Center and everything, they met in Davos so that the, um, the under the guidance of Lula in Brazil, the, the, le the world really working class created something called the World Social Forum at Porto Alegre. And that was the um, anti-Davos, right? And this was something that Naomi Klein uh, got famous chronicling. And the world, the and the one of the leading groups was Attack, right? In France, one of the leading northern uh, groups of you know social democrats who who allied themselves against the what was then called the neoliberal project, and it was actually at that point still being called Reaganism, but um, you know that neoliberalism was a slogan that they that they eventually adopted, but the. Um, but the World Social Forum, the, the project there was to explain, you know, how the, the, um, the world economic, that you could examine what they discussed at Davos, that Davos was effectively a big conspiracy. There was more like a university of the ruling class to coordinate um, the, re the, the counter revolution. So, the, so that this was right after the fall of the Soviet Union. So the, 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 the new, um, the new global, I mean, it was actually, ultramondulism was actually quite a successful project in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, so that the, the social democrats of the North were in trying to guide this massive revolt of the South um, by into social democracy, into, you know, preserving basically the relations yeah. of uh, capital, but they weren't really sinister. Not everyone up and down was sinister. This is what they believed or whatever in the moment of victorious, the victorious Cold War. But attack was, the, you know, started off as a, the Tobin tax um, lobby in, in, uh, in France. And they did a lot of really good pedagogy um, about the the uh, global financial system and to the point where you know you would meet teenagers on the street I mean, the battle of seattle everyone on the street in the battle of seattle understood how the um the major financial institutions the global institutions, the world trade organization the imf the um and so that's in 1999 by the end of the the end of the uh um of the decade of ultramondulism, but everybody understood how the, all that stuff worked. What they didn't understand was the imperial violence, how that fit in. So it's, you know, it's a typical thing. There was a, you know, when you got to Seattle in 1999, you had people who thought that the US should be bombing Serbia. Right. And at the same time, they understood very well how, how Yugoslavia had been taken apart by the, um, by the financial crisis of, that was created by the debt crisis of the third world debt crisis. So they, the, um, but the, the World Economic Forum was the star uh, enemy, you know, it was the focus of that for, for uh, 10 years. And then you had the 9-11, you had, like, it was as if the history had been degaussed, you know, like it was just, zapped it was over and the terror everything switched to this massive um program you know the the they rushed through the patriot act and things in other countries were mostly patriot act in the u.s which made it possible impossible to 
form something like the Altermondulist movement. The Altermondulist movement was, um, was unique because it was the first time that the, most of the people in the North, and I'm not talking about the, the bourgeoisie who were involved in attack, but even Naomi Klein recognized that the leadership had to be from the South. Now, they, the, the effective leadership was Chavism. That was the real leadership of the movement. But the, um, in, in the North, they tried to say, no, 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 it's the Zapatistas. You remember this, right? Mm -hmm. So, it was all, so yeah. that they were even softer and mushier and kind of whatever. They, they, uh, they were woke. They were kind of uh, pioneering a lot of the woke stuff, uh, Comandante Mar Subcomandante Marcus and stuff. But the real the real focus was the was the the red tide or the pink tide in in Latin America, which was more than was was just Chavez, but then uh, several other left wing governments um, re, re taking over it's mild revolutions across uh, major parts of Latin America. But that Porto Alegre, the World Social Forum, the un unique thing that the that Lula and his collaborators in the North accomplished was they barred political parties from joining, which meant that they cut off the communist parties. So they made sure that they could control this. Nevertheless, the, the movement itself, you know, the communist parties were very much involved and it was focused on the, the, um, the so-called neoliberal um, uh, program, which was to um, go above democracy with these things like the World Trade Organization and these treaties. And, you know, the, the big example was like, you know, Colombia, the country used to have a fund to stabilize the price of coffee, right? So that um, was an achievement of uh, social democracy under the hegemony of communism. There's a labor is strong worldwide. That entire capitalist capitalist um, world is afraid. The class is afraid that if they if they take a wrong move, that communism is going to come there. That they're going to lose that battle because you still have a red army. You still have massive resources belonging to the communist movement worldwide. Oil, satellites rockets everything right so now you you they're afraid of it so they have to make these compromises so you have something like that fund that stabilizes coffee prices which is also good for the treasury so that they have a petty bourgeoisie and a bourgeoisie hooked into this um social democratic program and then the world trade center the world trade center the world trade organization uh illegalized that right so then you have that then you then starbucks um the, the result of that is Starbucks, which now owns all the coffee and enslaved all the coffee growers and owns all the coffee in the world. So this well, kind of movement, sorry. Yeah, no, no, I just want, yeah. because two, two things occur to me. I mean, I yeah. think we touched Corey also the last time with the, um, the way in, and, but Molly, you and I yeah. talked about this too. And frankly, yeah. I've talked about this. The way in which there was right before COVID, there was, um, this enormous fueling of hysteria about climate and there was a yeah. you know, fear mongering every day the front page of the guardian every day was you know the, the overpopulation you have 12 years and the earth will cease to exist and all of these people and yeah. one of the first things i read i remember way back from from corey um and which alerted me to corey as a central reading was about you know Bill McKibben and all of these people, and then of course much later that film that came out, and and um, but Al Gore and all Al of these Gore, people. yeah. But what's interesting is how quickly COVID eclipsed that narrative. 
um, suddenly the thermometer, you know, which is one or two degrees, we have to do the Paris Accords, and this kind of hysteria, the, the giant methane bubbles, there's whatever it was, every week there was some new um, um, catastrophe looming, um, was, was just eclipsed. You don't hear anything anymore. Now you hear statistics about new positive cases from COVID. Um, it became, as Corey suggested a minute ago, became a much more effective, um, you know, Greta receded. I don't even hear about Greta anymore. Um, uh, and and receded and took, you know, a backseat to um, Anthony Fauci and, and all of this hysteria about COVID because that was a much more effective um, uh, people are more afraid of fever than they are, you know, um, the death of the planet or something. But it was I don't the control know. of it's the new it was the new media that was required to do to change these channels so fast. But it like goes you back couldn't to the do Patriot this Act, in two thousand. I mean, well, the they, they got Act. the it, the thing is the the um, the plunder of the Soviet Union and the socialist world in the nineties was where they got the money to make this clamp around the earth you know because there wasn't enough money to do what they they did with the media so they they went and they stole basically all the wealth of all of, of half of humanity you know that had built up enormous treasuries and in the socialist world they stole that went to wall street and they made something that turned into what we call the dot-com boom and then there was a little crash on nasdaq but basically they they created the technology they created the companies and they transformed the financial system that you could go infinitely into the future because the only thing that stopped you mining fi fic uh, fictitious capital infinitely into the future, into absolute slavery, was the Soviet Union, the, the army of the Soviet Union and its military power. So then once you remove that, then you can go infinitely, you can get all the money. And that's how you have these fictional, fictional there's all this fictitious capital from something like YouTube, which doesn't have a profit. You know, Amazon didn't have a profit for 10 years. It hemorrhaged billions of dollars. That it's not a capitalist business. These are not business ventures. They're something new. And then you get the money, you you mine the fictitious capital from infinitely in the future, you bring it into the present, and they created the the cage around the earth. That's the spectacle. But it took them until 2006 to get enough people wired up with the um, fast cable to have streaming video. And, and that was the precondition of being able to change people's attention on a dime and social media to, to, to police the multiplicity of ideas. But it really was, it was a technological problem. They had to wire, they had to wire uh, you know, a billion people who were very aggressive, you know? Corey. <laughs> I don't. It's very hard to do with four people. I'm realizing. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I don't know who, no, no. That I don't know. But, but I. You but you know, I you do. couldn't do this. You could have a headline. You can have a moral panic. They've gone back until the till the Middle Ages. You've had moral panics in this area, but you couldn't yeah, do yeah. what you do, what they did now with like whipping even the even Nazis could in the half in the halfway point of the war if they had decided oh well maybe it's not Jews maybe we should go after somebody else they couldn't have done that because. It took the parades and people talking and newspapers to get people to say, oh, the Jews are the menace. You couldn't then change right. it the next morning. Well, and yes, you see, saw least... how it you made a huge progress with how the U.S. Um, demonized Serbs overnight. People, the Americans didn't know who Serbs were. Like a week later, they were worried about them. Uh, 
you know, as the new menace, and that was television, but you couldn't get the level, the speed, the, the total um, right. saturation well, of a propaganda program until you had the streaming video and the computers in everyone's home and all conversations being threaded through the social media. Yeah, no, it's been remarkably condensed. The, the, I, I think uh, what Molly said about the destruction of socialist forces in Latin America and other places, and of course, uh, uh, the destruction of the Soviet Union is essential because um, what, what's going on is um, uh, we're looking at capitalist hegemony uh, asserting itself and while doing that, it's destroying social institutions within our societies in order to destabilize our societies. And when that happens, we have a hard time getting the facts because the social institutions are not functioning. They are dominated by money. So this is really a, a, a precondition to go forward. And it's really important that um, we understand that um, this happened. And that's why people don't understand um, right. no, nothing to be the um, uh, systematic uh, change. So people, you know, take it as COVID issue and uh, people take it as terrorism issue. And, you know, we are divided as people, but I, the information we get are also divided and we don't understand what's going on. And this is, um, this is a condition that's enforced by the capitalist hegemony. And uh, this is very, very dire. And, um, uh, and we, we, don't, we can't even talk about things because of this. If you go to, if you go to, I, I found it very interesting just as a sidebar that if, if you go to look at book titles where, you know, if you go to Amazon to look at books and you type in philosophy, um, what you get will be a, a whole several pages of books with post truth in the right. title that we're now in the post truth era. The post-truths. And when did that happen? Who said that? Well, it's you the know. financial. It was actually that was born in the in the um, in the um, the creation of the CEOs. It's the it's the the uh, the financial innovation, which means that they can change the valuations. Like they, you know, you can uh, make money. The money doesn't have it. It's in it. The monopoly of the financial control um, has created that. Right, because you 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 think you have a dollar bill now, and at one point this would depend on a sort of regime of truth that was relatively democratic in fact, meaning everybody had to agree, and now you don't. Now it's, it's up to a you know the guy who has his fingers on the spectacle. Well, that's an enormous power to control everything uh, that yeah. way. This is uh... yeah, and you see, but you see in language the the I mean yeah. COVID. I was called recently a covid truther a truther right? like that's a bad um, 9 thing 11 the truthers <laughs> yeah so truth is a bad thing now right yeah they did it was 9 11 actually that was the debut of it was the um discrediting of the um of the 9 11 uh, researchers who called themselves 9 11 truth and then this was the um the the uh, mockery technique which is an old technique right of the establishment to um try to um, make that into a, a mark of shame. 
Yeah. Anyway, okay. Corey. Yeah, there's just just so much mind fucking going know, on. Like so much mind fucking. I mean, even the way that the whole Great Reset now is being framed by media. I mean, um, Molly touched on it. Just says that's like a communist plot, right? Um, right. The socialist. I mean, it's yeah. just such bullshit, and people fall right into these traps. And even you know, I see. Um, I'm getting tagged by all this crazy stuff everywhere. And it's just, you know, again, then they're trying to pull my work in. So it gets discarded over here. Like it's just such a, um, a hotbed of fuckery. Right. And yeah. So and, um, def defamation, old school defamation. I mean, basically people are calling you a Jew. <laughs> right. No, it's true. So th that okay. So back to the Great Reset. That's basically um, last last year in September, actually at a C40 Cities um, summit, they introduced the Global Green New Deal. Right. So the 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 Green New Deal again. They they introduced it. They looked at it around to ask after the last um, bailout. And when was that? Two thousand eight. And so they're ready to bring that up. Like working with the VAS, the United Nations again. Um, the, I guess they just weren't quite ready yet. Like the accounting behind the um, monetization of nature wasn't quite ready yet. So that project from um, 2010, the, the Green New Deal, Global Green New Deal was put on hold and you can actually find videos still online from when they were about to launch that. And then it sort of got put on the back burner. And so last September they had the C40 cities um, while well, everyone was talking about green new deals with um, in the States with AOC and over in the UK with the labor party. Um, actually what they were already rolling out the United Nations had put out, I think in September, September 26th or 25th, they put out like a 200 page document on a global green new deal. And then what people didn't know, um, Klein, AOC, May, um, the executive director, 350.org, they were actually all at the C40 summit, even Vandana Shiva, Al Gore, and it was announced the Global Green New Deal. Even though people, the public wasn't yet hearing about it, um, you can go back and see announcements, um, all these people um, basically endorsing a Global Green New Deal. And then that became the basically rebranded after the pandemic into the great reset right so that's just like another rebranding exercise all this is rebranding exercise to um you know insulate um, capitalism i mean the whole you had a whole the debt now is up to 272 trillion dollars and so what's most important to understand none of this obviously is about um climate and i have written a lot about climate and i actually stopped i i'm i was stunned shocked actually to see people who identify as left um marching and demanding so-called solutions that actually destroy nature to save climate and that's what it became like millions and millions of people lobbying right for for green technology which isn't even green right mm -hmm. um so it may have changed from the climate focus, like that story, oh, you know, there's the ice is melting to the Great Reset because they switched the order of the um, program to the they're going to change the financial system first. 
partly because um, they this COVID worked so well that they couldn't have anticipated the success of this op that they could do this for a year. They probably thought they'd get away with it for a few months. And the fact that they went so far mean, meant that they slotted up the, 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 um, the transformation of finance um, which was supposed to come after the um, Green New Deal, the big heist of the Green New Deal. Now they're going to do the, you know, the, they want to separate wage money from capital liquidity through the blockchain. And somehow, like one of these things is going to um, be transformed into the blockchain. Well, maybe the, both. The, yeah. You know, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, the, sorry. No, just, just that the success of the COVID. Um, the, of the, the success of the pandemic, I am finding, this is just anecdotal, but my experience talking to people when they say, gee, but you, you know, but people are dying. And you realize that there's been 40 years or so of the sanitation of death, the, the hiding of misery in the third world, the hiding of death and violence, um, unless it's inner city ghettos in which it's sensationalized and made lurid or something on television shows. But people have, have unconsciously or compartmentalized in some way, but unconsciously they have forgotten that people die, that everybody dies. That, yeah. that hundreds of thousands of people die every year from hypertension and car accidents, suicide, ODs, everything, um, cancer. And they will say, but, but, you know, I know people that got COVID and died. And then there's a pause and they go, of course, they were all in their 80s, but still, you know, people were dying. I said, but, but, but hundreds of thousands of people die every year. You just don't hear about it. And you don't hear about the millions of children worldwide who die of starvation every year. Um, you don't hear about it. It's not on the Dick Wolf franchise TV shows. It's not on the nightly news. It's not anywhere. You have They're to also not blamed for it, though. That's another thing. Right. Like they've right. managed to blame people. Like everyone who dies of COVID is your fault because you're breathing and you're, you gave it to them. But there's this horror, they can't get past the fact that that the idea that they're, they're these numbers that are flashed to them every day yeah. um, about COVID statistics and there's more deaths. People are, are horrified. It's my God, all these people are dying. They don't realize it's marginally more than always done, you know. And then most places it's actually a little, they're not, it's less. Yeah, well, in most places, it might be a little more. Excess mortality is now being driven by people with who no longer have access to health care. Yeah, excess mortality is coming from 20 to 40 year olds who can't get to the hospital anyway. OK, but Corey, yeah. you were saying sort of eight minutes ago or so. So the climate climate. Pre we were talking about the yes, climate. Right, yeah, right. It is amazing, though, because no one um, I, I haven't seen anyone dispute, you know, the recovery rates that are over 99%. I haven't seen anyone dispute the fact that rolled over most of the deaths have occurred in senior care facilities, which is a crime. And I don't really see anyone um, who claims to care so much really caring about that. And um, yeah, there's just so much um, I don't know. Again, the common factor I've found of people who are who don't care, who keep saying we have to stick with the COVID, you know, who are hysterics. It's a, the common factor is they have real concrete benefits coming to them. 
nobody who doesn't is not um, seeing their stock portfolio go up, who doesn't own the insurance companies, who's not happy or working at home. Uh, nobody is um, believing this. Is they're, they're paying people to believe it. Well, even in India, you've seen the farmer protests in the past couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, massive, massive, massive protests, right, of, of yeah. the farmers uniting. And you see photos of thousands of people, and not, they don't have masks on. They're all protesting together, united, right? Yeah, nobody believed. Only people paid to believe it, and they're paid a lot. Yeah, and so- also now people are worried about the um, real estate values. So they know they have to stick with this program or their real estate is not going to get saved by another bailout. Yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to touch upon going back to part three of the social yeah. dilemma series is the fact that the, okay, so in all, all of the great reset is under being done under the guise of green, right? We're going to, you know, yeah. regenerative um, this, um, you know, we're going to re we're going to protect nature going forward, this green new planet, right? The dirty humans will stay at home and closed in their homes. Um, you know, we'll, we'll, the air will be cleaner, all this stuff. Um, so anyway, that, that's all, this is all about, and it's, I mean, no one should be surprised by this, but I mean, it's all emerging markets. So you've got the sustainable development goals, which is sort of the foundation behind this. And at the helm of the sustainable development goals, you have world economic forum doing the implementation. That's the, um, you know, that's what that partnership was basically about with the United Nations. And so you see this huge push under sustainable development goals or 17, right? Poverty, health, all these things that, that sound great and that everyone would want, right? Like, obviously we want health. We want, um, we want to eradicate, you know, a person like me or like you, we, we want, we want solutions for these things. We, that's why we're, we don't want capitalism, Right. So, I mean, but that, of course, is what they're trying to protect, the very system that creates all these injustices, right, and, and, and so much death and misery and the plunder of our planet. So, anyway, the SDGs, um, those, I keep saying over and over again, like, that has to be recognized. Those are emerging markets, Okay, so that's what this all is. So if you look at at health, even three years ago, because they were all ready, what you see today has been years in the making. It's not new. They just didn't start on that, you know, decide a few months ago, let's do vaccines. That's been building over the past decade, um, going into the vaccine market, right, emerging markets and also biotech. And so if you look at number three, even in 2000, 16 or 17 it's way i mean the the billions of dollars invested in that supersedes all the other um sustainable development goals because of the vaccine market coming right and here we are and then you had imperial college over a year ago um probably even in 2018 but especially announcing at davos in 2019 um a vaccine revolution. Those are their words, right? Meetings at Davos on a coming vaccine revolution, right? So here we are with that. And then the whole, everything around nature, I mean, the energy going forward under the guise of protecting biodiversity, under the guise of protecting the climate, the energy going forward is mind boggling. I mean, people have no idea, right? People have looked at aviation as like a, um, a major contributor to climate change and um, pollution. But going forward, I mean, the data centers, the, the 
information communications technology, you know, abbreviation ICT, it is absolutely phenomenal to the point we're looking at by 2030, um, perhaps. And I think personally, I think this is, I mean, this is a worst case scenario scientifically, but I think it's probably since we're going forward so quickly, half of the globe of the globe's energy consumption will be consumed by this, right? Right. So I, it's I mean, a vanishing, it, it's a vanishing program. That's the thing is it's going to cage people and then it's going to reduce the numbers of people and they have a new program after that. So, and then if you look at where that energy is going, right? So we had in 2012, half a million data centers. Now we have over 8 million and they're just, um, it's like just blowing up and no one's even looking at this or noticing. And so we have these massive hyperscale data centers, um, I, I've, I mean, there's just hundreds right now being built. They're all over the world. They're going into India and all these places that are hot. They need to be cooled. Um, just vast amounts of energy and water here that we're talking about. And then for this, I mean, is this for knowledge? No, this is for gaming. This is for online video streaming, right? And so 80% of consumer internet traffic by 2022 will be for game, for gaming and streaming video. So we're actually plundering and destroying entire biosphere so we can watch Netflix and play games. <laughs> I mean, this is fucked, right? It, I mean, it's unbelievable. It, this is insane. Yeah, it's staggering. I was looking at some of the construction um, of these things going on. Actually, in China, there was an article on that. But it's everywhere. Yeah, it's everywhere. And, um, this and the is... games are the surface of this spectacle is the is the um, diversion. Right. I mean, really, they're they're they have plans to depopulate pop parts of Africa to put up the wind farms to put up the solar yeah. farms. I mean. The, the problem, the, the ground level here is that um, either the ruling class really thinks there is a climate, um, there is a climate emergency where there, there's too many people uh, to sustain their, their, uh, this, the, uh, the arrangements of property as they are now and their lifestyle, and that their answer is to reduce, that they have to reduce the population, or they see an opportunity to do it, and they're doing it. But well, here's either way, that's the game. That's the game, yeah. is to keep them comfortable forever, which means turning the rest of the planet into a cage, and then reducing the number of people in it. Right. Well, and we the, all become data, right? It's harvesting data. I mean, they've already harvested all our um, goodwill and good intentions and now they're they're harvesting our data going forward but yeah but for themselves about... it's not actually commercially viable right they have to it's only the governments just the same as with vaccines it's not a commercially viable business it's a losing business the reason that people uh, certain people can get rich doing it is that the governments go at gunpoint take working people's money away and give it to the vaccine makers and force them to have right. a vaccine there's no market for vaccines well there's an interesting yeah. sort of sidebar about population because there was an yeah. article today about the massive um demographic collapse that children are simply not being born right um and that there's almost not a single country in the world that hasn't in which birth rates haven't fallen off a cliff. Um, and that certain countries, Japan and, and Italy, um, aren't even remotely close to replacement level births. 
Right. So that in 50 years, you're going to have a hugely aged population um, with no young people to care for the elderly. Um, and in those and no, countries, and, if they stick with their bad immigration policies, otherwise they'd have lots of young people. But but the but what's astonishing about the current figures, the yeah. least in this article, was that that it's uniform. But see, what has yeah. happened is they're saying, you know, yes, fertility rates have dropped. Hence, you know, IVF yeah. is, a, is a huge business now. But but that's not the real cause. It's simply that that people are not having children. Now, the reason yeah. people are not having children is they can't afford to have children. It's um, part of it, yeah. There's a, a whole huge, cultural change, you know. Yeah, it's a huge are, part because it's very yeah. difficult to have children. There are very few kind of children-friendly. I mean, Norway, Scandinavia is very friendly. You have paid maternity leave. You have free health care. You have free education. That's not the case most places, um, in which it's extraordinarily difficult and a and a burden for for families to have, you know, children at all, let alone more than one or two children. So it's simply not happening. And and, and if you work just, in Foxconn and you live in a in a worker dorm, right, you can't have a child. And that's more and more of the uh, of the industrialized centers that people are literally don't have a house, you know, because right. people right. will have children even in the studio apartment. They will if they want them, but they also people have lost the future. But the ruling class wants doesn't it's not going to be enough for this generation not to have children they, because they can always come back. They need to get rid of six billion people. That's their plan. They want a hundred. They want a billion people. On yeah, this and I think, but and I, but this is going to be an interesting. This is going to be an interesting narrative moving forward because they want clearly, a billion white people. <laughs> yeah, or they may preserve race. I mean, that's the thing. They've left that option open. Have you noticed how they're racializing white people the way the Nazis did, but negatively? You know, in the U.S., the the uh, the MAGAs and stuff like that are becoming a white race that's abominable and that may need to be exterminated. So it may be that they want to keep the existing sort of visible phenotypic racist things to keep to uh, facilitate their creation of the cast and maybe they don't but they're leaving that option open that the, that they could get rid of you know poor white people as a form of reparations or something they're, they're, they've got all their things in play and they can change them very very fast with the social media what the affects are you know, they can make, they could racialize white, some white people, they could, you know, like they did with the Serbs. Even, right. I just want to yeah, add no. that um, yeah, please. in part two of the social yeah. dilemma series, I actually yeah. go through this population that you're discussing, yeah. John, at the beginning of the article. So mm -hmm. I hope people will look at that because they're actually enclosing Africa literally with, yeah. with your um, under ocean cable, right? So they're, I mean, all eyes, all eyes are on Africa headquarters all over corporate headquarters all over the world are setting up in Africa. Um, everyone's like running to Africa because um, all the markets here are sort of tapped out right? And, and to expand in new data markets. I mean, data surpassed oil in 2017. Everyone's going to India and, and Africa now. Right. Yeah, and also the people have no um, powers of resistance. Their states have been depleted. They don't have armies of their own, and they they don't have um, you know they're very vulnerable. And a lot of the the uh, the land they want all the the, the plant. Samir Amin wrote about this in the eight, late eighties, even and the mid nineties. Yeah. That the Africa was going to be the 
the food, you know, industrialized food, and they're going to make the food for the world, and you got to get rid of the Indians. Indians got to go. Gonna, well, the other, I mean, Africa is also an enormous place. People forget about um, because of the, right, but it used the, to need a lot of people to farm it, and now you know they would do so. You could just have industrial, you know, you get rid of the peasantry. You have to dispossess the peasantry, which is one of the reasons they had all their their projects of the '90s with uh, Rwanda and Congo. Right. Right. Well, I mean, but but you look at the size of, say, a country like the Central African Republic. People look yeah. at those sort of imperialist maps that have Africa as this little tiny con continent the size yeah. of Greenland, you know, and it's actually like eight times the size of Greenland. Um, the Central African Republic alone is bigger than ha most of Europe. Um, it's yeah, and a it's really massive rich. continent. And people are, it's really rich in minerals and stuff. And then people Absolutely. live there. People have been pushed under a dollar a day. Yeah, yeah. I have a friend who's there in Bangui now. You know, they, um, they've been pushed under a dollar. So how are they, you know, what's going on? I have no idea. How do people survive? Yeah. Um, I want to just uh, touch on kind of a little bit and, and talk to Hiroyuki about this too, but because he mentioned the other day, the, we're back to culture, this destruction of culture, which is always kind of in the forefront yeah. of, of my mind. But um, he was mentioning how docile artists have become. And, and I see that with, because one of the missing ingredients that you, when you look at, you know, the, you look at your screens or read the papers or talk to people, the missing ingredient is that, is that art has just kind of disappeared. It's not, it's not part of the public discourse anymore in the least. And you think, where are all those radical artists that existed even like during the time of the Vietnam War, for example? Um, they have gradually been um, indoctrinated into something else, some other um, kind of entity. I don't know how to describe it. But you don't, you don't see articulate protest. I mean, you have Corey Morningstar writing this stuff. You have a few, very few people talking about it, but um, mostly there is a, there is a very sanitized cultural um, model out there in which, you know, you either have the Hollywood entertainment and, or uh, increasingly rarefied uh, high art that is only for the very rich. And that's been one of the, the, the fallouts from COVID is that those museums won't reopen, those galleries won't reopen, except to the very wealthy who will get special exemption and private screenings and private showings and whatever, whatever, whatever. Um, but for the, for the general populace, the culture has been um, redesigned, has completely been uh, reformatted in a sense but i want to hear what other people have to say about this well, well, to, sorry go ahead well i i think um what you're describing uh, can be seen in any other areas but it's it's really sad that um in the uh, uh in the art world it's very prominent because of the uh economic factor that's one thing i, I think the uh 
artists are hardened into uh, values uh, pushed forward by the institutions that are funded by the uh, uh, power structure. And um, so this is, uh, this has been going on uh, uh, in relation to what other uh, fields are reacting to it. Uh, for example, the, the, um, there are many leftists who would disregard art as propaganda tool. And that's, that's uh, totally um, uh, understandable. And, you know, like, uh, John has talked about the uh, uh, CIA funding the uh, art, and uh, there's a complex aspect to it. Um, and uh, people believe uh, such thing because we are cornered into this situation where we are um, trying to figure things out when we don't really know uh, how we are cornered in this situation. And we don't really, uh, under, try to understand what's really going on. So um, it's, a, it's a really sad situation that the structural elements uh, affect the cultural situation and that also augment nicely how things are gonna restructured. Well, I think people have been, the arts education created part of this indoctrination because People, when you say you know, the artists think, oh, it's a propaganda tool, it's not of importance, because the real purpose of art for centuries has been forgotten largely, I think. And, and people began to focus on message and, and the, 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 the institutional support for art rewarded really bad art and, and marginalized um, any kind of radical expression of art. And this coincides with the fall of the Soviet Union, too, actually, interestingly. But, and the big thing uh, is, I mean, is there's the base, there's the real um, class base. I mean, the, Corey's work is very interesting. We mentioned it at first is that Corey's work has actually had an enormous impact. It's actually uh, huge. And the, you can see that the ruling class spends literally millions of dollars trying to contain its spread. And um, otherwise, and otherwise it would uh, be, you know, uh, in a, in a different economy, she would be able to make a lot of money from it. Even you know, it would have been like that. It would have had a. It would have been a resource that could then reproduce itself, and she could then sponsor others to do it. Now, what they did is they put Patreon in there to you know as a gatekeeper. But the the you, the thing is, there's no audience um, for, with right. money right. that is also the whole social reproduction of audiences with money that are diverse was abolished by. Um, gentrification the cities were the centers of these things the democratics that you know that you had to have the trickle down i mean not trickle down but you had you know theater in new york you have stuff like that publishing and these depend on a democratic and um prosperous population that's politically active etc cetera, etc cetera. all that undergirding uh art, the production of art is gone so there may there probably is many and of course, then there'll be fewer people who experience art, are moved by art, and then go make art. And of course, you still have people who want to make art. That art will change. It's like in, 
what Adorno says about modernism and then it's, it's completely distorted by the people who love the Frankfurt School, you know, the hipsters love the Frankfurt School, think that, you know, the avant-garde aesthetics are eternal and that they, they but in right. fact, they reflect, they reflect the horrible situation of, uh, you know, the early 20th century. And so now we have art that reflects the horrible situation of our situation, but you don't have any, um, a flourishing art that can be uh, um, serve a function of an art in a revolutionary society because we're not a revolutionary society because we're right. now well, that's defeated. The difference, the difference between now and when Adorno made those observations is has been the eradication of the audience. Um, and, and I mean, I see it just in my lifetime in the 30 years or 40 years almost of involvement in theater um, the audience for theater has disappeared. I mean, yeah, and they were literally, there was AIDS that actually wiped out the audience. Well, it certainly wiped out a chunk of it. Well, but... it wiped out the lead, the aesthetic leadership, the high levels of connoisseurship were, were uh, reduced very rapidly. Yeah, no, it did. It did. Um, although I'm not sure it entirely explains it, but what it did. No, but I mean, it's a, was, it's a significant was, factor. Was, yeah, no, it was. And, and um, it, it, in, and that's thinking dialectically a very yeah. complicated process that how that happened because it, it was not a, a simple oh just these people disappeared died um, it was it was the way in which a narrative was attached to that but anyway yeah. and and that's with gentrification and I, I think um, I, I as a practicing artist I I, I have noticed that. Uh, the practice of making cultivate our ability to operate within giving framework. So people are trained as we work in the studio, we recognize the framework and we try to do best within it. And this is one thing. And another thing artists does is that we also connect dots. We look at facts, we observe reality, and come up with the situation that goes beyond the framework. So um, I always, uh, I've sensed this uh, contradiction in, uh, in my practice. And as I see people, for example, we, ha we had the election situation and uh, a lot of artists, they like to play corporate politics. And this is really hurtful considering what the consequences are, but I can kind of understand that they have this narrow uh, perspective and they operate in it. And uh, they are not really thinking about, they're not examining uh, life. They are right. playing this game right. in, in giving uh, the situation. It's, it's a really uh, a tragic situation. Uh, if we consider what the potential of our minds to go beyond. Well, it's the, like, the, it's, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. It's just, uh, you know, artists like everyone else are going to have uh, high levels now of disgust and despair. <laughs> There's not, what else are you going to feel? Like, what is there any kind of well, creative I th activity? I think, yeah, it's true, but I well, think that, the other... Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, that, 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 I, I, I totally uh, get that. And uh, I think uh, a lot of people are feeling that too. And when we look at that, I think there is an element of capitalism um, 
turning into doomsday cult. People are wishing some sort of end, some sort of um, um, uh, dystopic situation in which they can survive because they have the substance to do so. And uh, they would rather do that than admit that things are horrible. And they try to operate within this uh, situation in which we are heading toward this horrible situation. And they well, go along talk, with the- yeah. yeah, when you talk about framing, that framing that artists work within this framework. And I think that's very true that, that I think artists coming up today that, and there's ever fewer of them, um, don't think beyond that framework in any sort of way that they they've been effectively that that kind of radical voice whether it was people like Neruda or it was Jackson Pollock or it was whoever um, you know an artist like Agnes Martin that kind of um, solitary pursuit of the truth back to the truth again for whatever that meant for them was still a political statement. It was still, I mean, this was one of Adorno's observations too, you know, that 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 it was a rejection of the the system and the status quo in all these various forms that the rejection took. It was still a rejection. I sense a lot less of that now. Um, I think the capacity to imagine a rejection has been reduced. Um, the framework has become extraordinarily effective in how it encloses the human imagination today. Um, and, and artists are, are effectively domesticated and they're very timid and docile and um, they're afraid and people have become terrorized. They've been decades of being terrorized and the terrorizing has gone into um, hyperdrive now over the last couple of years. So a lot uh, of these gestures have been just so they're they've become so sclerotic and and become the formula. For example, like a, a rejection of status quo. You know, it's like the avant-gardeism of the '60s was demanding that people, artists, also reject the status quo that's good. You know, that you that you reject right. that you undercut revolutions that you. Um, always have the attitude of a complaint that is um, that is uh, legitimate when they're when in you know uh, 1920 in Germany and not necessarily legit legitimate about everything and in every context. So that that became, people get, became unmoored. They don't know how to respond to the reality. So maybe they they think that uh, you know affirming things now is a, simply a menu choice rather than rejecting them, that these are these are menu choices of formulas that are themselves commodified. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, because everything, I mean, this is Guy Debord, right? I mean, it, it, yeah. Um, uh, and it's true. Uh, the commodification is you yourself are commodified. And, 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 this is and specifically, there is uh, the importance of the uh, uh, demonization of Marxism. That's, that's uh, major. Wait. Yeah. yeah. Well, but this is the whole thing. I mean, you talk about Corey being trolled and because what I see now on social media and God, it's so fatiguing to go on social media and I somehow feel I need to still do it. But um, it really 
uh, is nauseating in a, in a daily basis. But, but what the trolling, what I see is um, kind of cyber agent provocateurism, that there are these, these plants, you know, that, that come out and go, Klaus Schwab is a communist. Um, right. the, you know, the Rothschild banks control. There's a cobble of Jewish bankers that are behind all of this Green New Deal that, you know, whatever it is, these absurd um, uh, complaints and that that uh, the delegitimizing of Marxism is just overwhelming. I mean, I just I see it on actually reasonably intelligent people. Um, I see comments and I think, my God, you know, yeah, uh, because nobody reads, nobody reads. Mostly mass people are disguised as Marxists during that they do the more severe they have it in every flavor but with like Corey's stuff i mean they literally are there are there are dozens of people on a payroll receiving a salary to contain what her blog right no of course in every way right you know and and other people's work too but hers has been the most successful Right. It, it's really effective. I think I really value Corey, Corey's work because it demonstrates uh, what it is, how it colonizes yeah, and dem- domesticates. Right. She makes a case and then uh, there's very little, um, uh, you know, left for them to um, to uh, mock or whatever, you know, there's know, no, she I, makes the case me, very concretely. Yeah. Right. People said, oh, Corey Morning, that she's just that crazy conspiracy theorist. I said, what? <laughs> what? Where's the conspiracy? What conspiracy is she promoting? I'd like to know. Um, right. And also, there is a conspiracy. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there is well, a conspiracy. That's the whole thing. I mean, Davos is where they go to uh, conspire. But the conspiracy is, but what Corey does is lay yeah. out these facts. Here's yeah. what is connected to this. Here's who funds this. Here's who does this. Um, there's no leap of faith required. This is just, here are the facts. And, right, the um, conspiracy thing that all that suggests now is that these people don't mean well, that we can't, we mustn't assume that they are mistaken, that they are, right. that they actually know what the consequences of their actions are. That That is basically, and they're white. Because, of course, if you're Saddam Hussein, you're thought capable of conspiring to do something bad. Okay, well, this is we're getting lengthy here, um, which is not (laughs) a bad thing. Um, But, Corey, is there anything you want to touch on anything here before we? Yeah, I I actually do before we end it. um... (laughs) Hey, take as much time as you want, please. I love listening to the three of you. Okay, so I did want to. I can't believe that not very many people have commented on this because I just think it's mind blowing what I came across on this week and last week and reading these white papers um, from the, what's it called? The, um, let me find it, the vaccine. Okay, so I went through all these papers. As you know, I, I helped sort of guide people through them and what they what everything meant through them. One was from the Rockefeller communication uh, Rockefeller communication manual on contact tracing and where that what what that was for and where that was headed. Um, I did another one within the past I don't know 
month or so from from Share Verified, which is United Nations uh, partnership with United Nations and Purpose, which is the for-profit marketing PR firm of Avaz, and so that one's on vaccine communications. And what's in what's in that communications? You can see governments um, and everyone, um, NGOs, everyone involved in civil society using um, basically verbatim what's written right in that manual. Okay, so it's talking about to bringing back, back spots online so people will be influenced and further engineered, manipulated by messaging done by backspots to overcome vaccine hesitancy. And so the vaccine confidence project, this one's pretty crazy because what happened when I was doing the share verify going through it, they were talking about how, um, about barbershops, okay, and how they're key to reach um, black population. Oh, yeah, that was incredible. Right, and so that, I mean, it was stunning. And also it's what- like a cartoon. Right? Uh, yeah, sorry, go ahead. That was so funny. Yeah, it was stunning. But then I, when I was researching the Vaccine Confidence Project, I was listening to a Zoom meeting. And I mean, it was watched six times. No one, no one looks at this stuff. No one watches it, right? No one reads these yeah. papers. And so I just want to read a little bit of just a couple paragraphs out of this because it's so mind blowing, but because people don't really read or maybe they're just, you know, buried under tidal well, waves of information. Okay. So out of the, out of this meeting, so they talk about increasing confidence in the in vaccines among African-Americans and implications for COVID-19 vaccines, right? That's their words. So this is verbatim, okay? Quotations, building trust. We have built many relationships and a high degree of credibility, which means we can engage other researchers with our community partners. Um, and then I I'm just, I'm reading right now off a, a Facebook post I did. And then I just remind people about the share verified communications on, um, you know, really exploiting the, the barber um, um, framing, yeah. that whole thing, right? Like really using that <laughs> to people's benefit. So this again, back to vaccine confidence project, right from them. So what we did last night was this, we had two barbers. So down here, you see where I'm pointing down here is Mike Brown, Mike Brown, a barber and one of our, and one of our hair barber shops, Katrina, a stylist in one of our shops. They are long-term partners of the center. This is someone speaking within the meeting. Okay. Mike recorded some of his customers asking questions about the flu vaccine. Would they take it? What their questions are and about the COVID vaccine. We edited those. So we were able to bring voices of customers in short clips to this panel. Okay, now they go, and then going down a bit further because I transcribed all this. We have a community of activists here and others that go back into black and Latinx communities have more credible information to which they engage. They are community influencers. They are trusted. They are seeing and encountering populations that most of us don't encounter. So, I mean, to me, that's mind blowing. They actually have partnerships with barbers and stylists and communities, right? Where they yeah, you know, though, this is not going to work, though. But it's very, very funny. And, you know, right? it's funny because my, my stepson, actually, we talk about this stuff. And the other day he said, oh, my God, did you see the thing about the barbershops? 
and that that made all his friends who are the targets you know the, um, um, uh, they, that made them all crack up you know and and some of them had even been you know worried about covid they live with the grandparents who are you know immigrants and they're worried about hurting them and stuff like that and they this stuff is really turning them off but it's very very funny because of course you know someone's getting paid right to do that work and it is it's if you told someone without reading that even after you read it they'll say oh that's a conspiracy theory right <laughs> right well but i mean but this is this is that disconnect that gap you know i mean whoever they hired or will continue to hire um for advice on the black community will be somebody like david simon you know they they will hire all these wrong people and so it's always going to be wrong because they have no idea about these people um, or these areas, and so. Or who do they? They have this whole idea that this is even a, uh, yeah, that it's a, a separate society. Like where, I I showed you, uh, I sent you something from my Facebook, which made me laugh. From my elementary school friends, who are absolutely the people that are supposed to be targeted by Obama, being, uh, getting a vaccine, vaccine on, right. and they're all going no, love Obama, no, because right. it's. It's like, it's so transparent. They're trying to use techniques that work on a very small audience of, um, you know, hipsters, gentrifying hipsters. They're trying to use that on the entire world, which still has right. its rationality, which haven't had the brain implant, you know, which they're not um, uh, cognitively impaired yet. No, so they, I know teenagers that I talk to here who yeah. were laughing about that Obama thing. So what, like, what kind of proof is that proof of <laughs> What is that supposed is to be? Like ridiculous, you know? Um, and to think that, and they were aware that, that, that the attempt to provide legitimacy by showing Obama getting it on time, that that was insulting. They just saw that as an insult to their intelligence and laughable, and it showed how out of touch the authority structure was. Um, but so, this is amazing that Corey found, like Corey, it was like, isn't it amazing that you that that's out there in the public where they say we have our spies in your barber shop, and then they assume that the people who then go to the barber shop are still going to think it, they're living on a different channel where the the barber isn't a spy. <laughs> Yeah. You know, why, why would that be after they say we have a spy who's going to talk to you while you're, she's washing your hair. Record you. <laughs> and record you. And then you go in there and you think that you're not being, like, why would that be? Like, they're counting on this very, very narrow group of people who are the heavy social media users, but also who are the culture workers who have no real job, you know, who just make more of these images and that they um, they can have that very advanced double thing that you can tell them that the person washing their hair is recording you and trying to get you to take a vaccine. And at the same time, you'll still think she's your friend. Yeah, it's yeah, funny, no. but it's 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 it speaks to something else, which I know, again, talking to people that that, you know, people I know here and Norwegians. Um, but that they find it strange that that the people pushing the vaccine feel it's necessary to trick people into taking it, right? 
Like, why would that be necessary if it's so right? And nothing is they even the, evidently good for yeah. you. Why do you need it? You know, and why can't they just mount an actual scientific thing where they say, well, we're going to convince people of this is good. Like you would say, we're going to convince people to take vitamin D. And uh, this is our argument. It is beautiful and it's convincing. Like instead right. they say, how do we uh, disarm these intelligent people so we can manipulate them with uh, distractions, which is what the, the manual, the one that I read that Corey put up said. Well, my final thought here is, um, which people can, I would like welcome comments on. What has been most interesting to me anyway about the COVID whole rapidity with which this unfolded and, and the quickness and effectiveness of the lockdowns uh, is that there was never any public debate whatsoever. There were no, you know, legislative panels called to discuss all the thousands of dissenting doctors to this. Those dissenting voices were just shut down. There was no town halls. There was nothing. There were, it was just absolute government by decree, and people pretty much accepted that and did not resist it. Um, I mean, of course, there are massive protests all over the world now against it. But at first, it, the lack of debate, the lack of democratic discussion um, was, it, was accepted. And it Startling. was remarkable to me. Isn't, isn't everyone happy they voted? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But Trump, yeah. the Trump op had a lot to do with that success. And yes, the nature so. of this thing that if you get everyone in the room in Congress, you're going to spread the disease. But, um, but it, they worked up to it. They worked up to this. Uh, delegitimizing democracy itself by saying the um, the real the truth of democracy is orange man. Right, right. The one thing um, going forward, even over the next month, I think people will really be um, hit right over the head with it, like we are with COVID every day. The whole they're really um, counting on the whole celebrity fetish thing. Um, you know, this whole celebrity type of pathology that that's so paramount in society now, like right out of that same paper, they actually say for a pro-vaccinate movement, the big search for new trusted messengers to reach the hesitant audiences. And then they actually mentioned Kim Kardashian or the NHS. <laughs> Right. And, and so people have to be really, really aware. And again, all this, um, you know, celebrity stuff it is, in my opinion, it, it is a pathology. And I think it's so important that people remove that pollution from their mind. Yeah. Right. The influencers they have. Right. There's the major celebrities and then they go down to they try to get someone in every little network yeah. of 50 people, right. someone yeah. like you, like they were. I'm sure that somebody is eventually going to come and offer you money. <laughs> well, I saw a video the other day with Snoop Dogg, right? Right. Um, who, as somebody said, is the Dean Martin of his his age. But anyway, is Snoop Dogg doing a commercial for Soda Stream, the Israeli right. company that is built on stolen Palestinian land? Um, and and here he was, and it was all very comedic and funny. And um, and I thought that's that's remarkable. You know, this is like. This is on all levels a remarkable kind of statement or artifact that should go in a time capsule. Um, but but that's the but but celebrity is is one of the one of the really profound distortions. You were mentioning distortion. That's one of the today's 
contemporary distortions um, because it's it's you know it's true with electoral politics it's true with just about everything um, Anthony Fauci is a celebrity now uh, and and makes celebrity appearances so I don't know okay um, any well, you know what, John I I, I um, yes I have one thing um, I think uh, what we are looking at is basically a war on people. It's, it's a campaign to destabilize social structure so that they can come up with uh, restructuring programs. So once we buy into uh, narratives one way or the other and uh, engage in those debates, uh, we become part of the um, destabilizing force. So it's, yeah, it's a very insidious. It's insidious. Very tricky yeah. situation, and we need to recognize this as an attack. Well, it's always I think is one of the things as sort of as as critics, as commentators, as we are, you know, what all of us are doing in varying ways. Um, it's it's very hard to continue to be aware of the parameters of one's own objections, you know, and and how quickly you can be assimilated or appropriated. It's it's astonishing and scary, uh, but uh, you know that's I guess the 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 um, the goal or something, the obstacle one must overcome. I don't know. That Corey's anyway. right. We should throw away our smartphones. Well, yeah, I I um. You have kids, it's hard. It's very hard because that's yeah. their... Well, you also, I mean, this is that, you know, the whole model of extracting from people, right? I mean, what you're extracting is their attention and, and interest and all of that. But um, you can, if you threw away your smartphone, you do delegitimize yourself as a human being. I mean, you can't, you can't order things online. They ask for a telephone number. You can't apply for certain things you can't apply for jobs even organization if there were jobs um you can't you have to have one you're not a human yeah. being without right it, so, where it's you know. it really is an enclosure that was very effectively done and now they'll get rid of you know commercial airlines all these kinds of things they're moving the the public sphere into the private sphere I used to not be able to tell you what you said on your phone or text you know that was a, that was unconstitutional but facebook can can yeah. censor your text or your phone call well the the restrictions on travel i was thinking today actually the the profound implications of um stopping people's movement you know i've spent my whole life traveling i mean literally my whole adult life has been non-stop traveling yeah and i've lived all over the world and i've i've stayed all over the world and it was one of the supreme or the supreme pleasure in my life i think was travel and it gradually the fun was taken out of it until it became a you know an exercise in 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 terror and and accusation and paranoia and it was horrible now to take a plane flight anywhere and it's increasingly hard to even drive or take trains anywhere because there's so much security and it's so invasive um and pretty soon you won't even be able to do it at all and that's going to have extraordinary consequences far-reaching consequences um if people can't you know do go anywhere anymore well, um, it's going to be i mean and it's going to be 
they're well they're going to s- surround the world cities that'll be domed that'll be for the ruling class their castles and everyone else is going to be stuck in their camps yeah no gated community william burroughs is with the wild boys you know yeah um it, the gated communities and the barbarians outside the gates everywhere fighting over scraps of food right <laughs> although that, that, it'll be more regimented i mean mm-hmm. only the useful will live even yeah. in, in one of the paper in one of those papers I was referencing, they talk about districts. And then yeah. when I was read I was reading yeah. that out loud, something in my one daughter, she quipped, May may the odds be forever in your favor. Yeah, that I mean, and that that's a military author, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that that thing was putting it out there to eroticize it, to 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 prepare you, to inoculate you. Oh, that was the behavioral insights team. Yeah. What what um paper was that from? The behavioral insights team. It was on Slovakia. Uh, okay, is that on your? Is that in your first blog there? Um, where is that? I put that on. There's a Twitter thread I did on it, and it's okay. on book as well. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I go through. Be- I go through the whole document. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a constant war on humanness and connectivity. Yeah. And I saw an ad today from I don't know where the Netherlands or something or maybe it was Slovakia, I don't know, where don't, if you meet somebody that you haven't seen in a long time, don't hug them. And it was a picture of two people wearing masks with a cactus in between them. So, right. And then you think they love this, you know, the, the fist bump, of course, is comes from prisoners have to do that, because if you shake someone's hand, they can hold you and stab you. Right. So right. you do the fist bump and then that. And so it becomes an ironic thing. But it's like you forget the origin of not being able to shake someone's hand is this artificial cage that you're both in. Yeah, I know. I can't I go to chess tournaments. You can't shake your opponent's hand anymore. You do an elbow bump, you know. So there you have it. Um, All right. Well, let's one. let's conclude here. Um, uh, John, this was let's... great and very long, and I would love to do it again. You know. Hey, John. I yeah. Can I just add just a quick little thing? I know. Yes, please. Um, I I just wanted to say it. Although I see more and more people being um, and I agree with everything you said about the travel and everything. Um, but we have to remember that most people in the world have never even flown on a plane and that we're looking at the global South being starved out. Right. 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 So, oh. But never I mean, being. But, yes. And, and people are walking home, uh, you know, um, barefoot yeah. uh, a thousand miles from their workplace in India right, dying right, on the way. Right. Yeah. Well, so but I mean, you know, even those people are more and more restricted in what, yeah. yeah and yeah. what, what they can do and where they can go. I mean, right. But our objective with the whole privilege discourse is the thing is, yeah, we're privileged and we have to remember that. But what we should remember is that everyone deserves this freedom that we have, not that it would be better for an equality for to have this massive um, uh, polarization that Marx talked about with, you know, the overlord class and then everyone else in, a, in uh, the conditions that now obtain in much of the world yeah. already yeah. have been there for a long time. Right. Right. Well, the other thing that during, and, and this is a whole separate topic we could devote a whole couple hours to, which is a lot of the discussion about, the AI and which I've written about, of course, AI and the technological revolution and the mm-hmm. digitalization of everything forgets that most of the world is proletarianized more than ever. And, and it's just invisible. And um, 
you know, it, it, I'm, the thing I was just did a thing on press TV about the war in Yemen. It's not a war, the slaughter in Yemen. Um, that is, I don't know what percentage of Americans have even heard of it or the, or Europeans for that matter. Uh, the, the, it, it's extraordinary. This is a, a, a mass genocide going on and nobody knows about it. It was already the poorest country in the, in the Arab world. So, um, the installation of people, the non-education, I mean, there's no no financial education in high school. And then I know people, I, I am discovering that I actually know Americans who I don't have contempt for, you know, like not really awful people who didn't know that SNAP has a work requirement. Right, right. Like they don't know how their very neighbors, uh, the conditions of their life or the laws that obtain in their own city. People think of themselves in a TV movie. They think of the world as a TV movie and they don't, they rarely think beyond that, that template. That's kind of how life is experienced today. And that's very, you know, it's very narrow. It's a very narrow experience. Um, and, but COVID has, has kicked all this into a, in a, into another register of unreality, I think. Uh, yeah. and, and that's, what's terrifying. Um, because it has met with not nearly enough resistance. But again, we don't see the resistance. You know, um, there is resistance. There is anyway. enormous resistance. That's the thing. We have to remember that and that our job is not to convince the people who are the enemy to join that resistance, but to empower that resistance. Right. Because those other people are, you have to write them off. Yeah. Okay, guys. All right. Thank you. This was super good. Um, and, and I hope to do it again. And this should be up soon. I'll, I'll let you all know. Um, but thank you, Corey Morningstar, very much. Molly Klein, Hiroyuki Hamada. Thank you, guys. Thank you all. Um, thank you all. And um, we'll talk soon, everyone. Yeah. Thank okay. you, everyone. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. -bye. Bye.